Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Forever Saturday podcast, because it is always college football Saturday in our house. I'm Serena, better known as S. George at R on Twitter. And I'm Matt, also at MattSwartz723. We're going to do the East now. That's right. Big Ten East, the real division. Yeah, not that JV bullshit that they've got going on over there in the West. Broke boys. We're going to do it in the same way. Uh, We're going to do 2023 things. We contemplated doing something different, but we had already kind of thought about it, and we're going to roll with it. We're going to see how it goes. We were committed. Got to finish it off. Yeah, we couldn't couldn't leave you hanging on what 2023 thing Penn State is. I mean, how are you going to live? Obviously. And, I mean, like the West Division, technically this is the last year of the East Division, right? It just doesn't actually matter for any of the teams here because – you know, as it stands now, like Michigan has to get past Ohio State and Ohio State has to get past Michigan and Penn State has to get past both of them. And that's basically going to be the same structure in the new conference format. So anyway, it would be nice, though, if, uh, you know, for the final year here, we, we wrap it up with Michigan winning its third straight division title. They should do that. Yeah, cosine. I support this. Good. All right. It's done. Gavel, gavel. <laughs> All right. So uh, you want to kick things off here then? Like you said, we're starting 2023 things from the bottom going up to the top. So you don't get to find out who we're picking for the winner until you get to the end. Sure. In a surprise to absolutely no one, at the bottom of the Big Ten, we have Mich- uh, Indiana. <laughs> Indiana. I was going to say Michigan State. I was about to be here for all of the troll, but it really is Indiana. I mean... That team looks deeply, deeply tragic. I, I, it's hard to think of a team. Th- that's actually an interesting question. Think about 2020 and, you mm-hmm. know, what they were coming off of, like nine wins, right? They were, they were aiming for like nine win Indiana. Yeah, I think they went eight and one, if I remember right, because it was obviously a shortened schedule. But yeah, they were one touchdown away from beating Ohio State, going undefeated and winning the East outright. Is and, there a uh, team that's fallen farther that's from man. 2020 to today nothing comes to mind immediately I mean I was gonna say that Michigan might be one of the few teams maybe the only team that I can think of that's had their fortunes change more drastically since 2020 but in the totally opposite direction yeah a lot like, more fun for us than for them like fallen farther it's really hard to think of anybody yeah no I don't think so I mean to think where they were two years ago and Tom Allen looked like a goddamn magician and then Kalen DeBoer left for Fresno State and Kane Walmack left for South Alabama. They lost both their coordinators. They lost Mike Hart, and since then they are six and eighteen overall and two and sixteen in the Big Ten, which uh, woof. And that doesn't really seem like a blip at this point either, because twenty twenty three looks real bad. Like maybe not Northwestern bad, but but pretty fucking bad. Um, looked up some of the numbers here, and the defense finished one hundred ninth in SP plus last year, and has two returning starters and it's not the kind of returning starter situation where it's like they brought in a bunch of transfer upgrades like they do not have a lot coming in they do not have a lot coming back so it looks pretty bad on that side of the ball Um, the offense I think might be a little bit better we did see some life from them last year at times I think Cam Camper is a pretty good receiver and they've got three starters coming back on the offensive line but that was also a group that couldn't block anybody at all last year. I mean year. if you remember we ate them alive last year. We, what Michigan ended up with nine sacks in that game I want to say? absolutely dumb and we killed Connor Basilak or whatever. I, I just was remember that who played yeah that that's game? right. Connor Basilak. What's funny is that he's on the schedule again this year but at Bowling Green. Yeah I, I just I just actually heard I think it was the Engel Blog Roundtable I was listening to that they talked about that. Oh I, I haven't like, even listened oh, to that. Oh I didn't <laughs> 
I didn't know that. I didn't. I didn't know that was coming. I haven't gotten to the point of mental illness where I'm oh, right. previewing yeah. Bowling Green seven weeks in advance. I, I have a fair. little bit of dignity left. <laughs> just a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I just remember from that game, like by the end, by the fourth quarter, there were situations where he was dropping back to pass and getting pressure so fast that he was legitimately closing his eyes and just chucking it deep or throwing it out of bounds, like just trying to get rid of the ball because like, oh God, I'm about to die. So anyway, the offensive line was not good. They do have some guys coming back, but they couldn't hold up in the passing game. They couldn't hold up in the running game. So I don't know that you're going to see anything much better there. They are going to have a new quarterback with Basilak moving on. It's either going to be Tennessee transfer Taven Jackson, who's actually Trace Jackson Davis's little brother. He's thrown one pass in his college career, so I, I don't really know what we're going to get out of him. Or it's going to be redshirt freshman Brendan Sorby. You're telling threw. me you can't tell me exactly how good this guy is going to be after throwing one pass in his whole college career? Yeah, I mean, probably you better. Don't know ball. Probably better at Tennessee, <laughs> given what I've seen from that offense than what I've seen from the Indiana offense. Yeah, it's either going to be him or Brendan Sorby, who was a redshirt freshman and threw six passes last year at Indiana. So uh, that situation is probably not going to be good. I mean, seems like almost definitely a step down from what they had last year because Basilak was at least kind of generally okay. Like, it, it was a bad offense, but he was one of the better parts of it. And like I said, there's, there's probably going to be a little to no running game. Again, the offensive line was bad. They really have very little coming back there. Jalen Lucas is probably the nominal starter. He's got a little bit of, like, speed, big playability, but this is probably the worst backfield in the conference, and given what we were saying before about the offensive line and the defense as a whole, this is just another situation where, kind of like Northwestern in the West, there's so little here talent-wise and performance-wise. It's just really hard to even see how this gets turned around in the near future, let alone this year. (laughs) I mean, maybe Tom Allen has a little bit of wizardry left in him and can – you know, pull something together here over the next couple of years and get this back on some sort of positive trajectory. But if this team wins more than like two Big Ten games this year, it'll be borderline miraculous. So that's a bleak ending, but <laughs> that's about all I got in Indiana. And not to mention, I mean, we took one of their offensive weapons from last year too, and AJ AJ Barner, right? Right, like he caught three touchdowns, I think, last year, a couple hundred yards. You yeah. know, like they really don't have a lot. Yeah, yeah. You look around that roster, and it's just oof. <laughs> it's tragic. So yeah, like I said when we did the West preview, it's Northwestern is probably the worst team in the conference by some margin, unless Indiana is that bad, and they might be. We're going to find out. And I guess that brings us to our 2023 comparison for Indiana, which we're going with Silicon Valley Bank. Which <laughs> Honestly, can... that seems right, actually, because Silicon Valley Bank, like there was a while there where you were like, all right, you look around, you're like, everything's working. They were growing really fast. Yeah, it seemed to be going like so well that it was almost unbelievably well the growth trajectory and then reality just kind of hit and not because of like fraud or criminality or you know it wasn't like some weird scheme that blew up on them necessarily it's not ftx right yeah. it was just sort of the general misfortunes of reality and timing and all of that but now you look around and it's basically the this is fine dog meme where everything is on fire and a few functional spare parts are, are mostly gone have gotten picked up elsewhere and and what is left is just a you know a burned out shell <laughs> so well, that's a, a pretty <laughs> a pretty rough comparison but i don't think necessarily a wrong one yeah no i think that's fair matt came up with that not me but i'm i'm co-signing it now i'm signing off on that i think that's totally <laughs> totally comparable all right moving on to number six yeah number six we have rutgers i think you know anybody who knows anything about the big 10 east understands i think directionally what how this ranking is going to go. So Rutgers and Indiana being towards the bottom, I don't think is a surprise to anyone. 
Um, Rutgers is really interesting because they are extraordinarily Big Ten West here in the Big Ten East because Greg Schiano has built them to have, you know, a legitimately pretty good defense and a fucking horrific offense, which means they should be hanging out with Iowa over there. <laughs> but, you know, it it's just one of those things where the nature of the way that they play probably isn't going to be enough for them to overcome, you know, that offensive deficit and really hang with with the big boys in this league and and that's just kind of who they are yeah. at this stage. So I do think they're in a little bit better position than Indiana. If you look at like SP plus and some of those rankings, they're right in the same range, like nineties or so. Um, so obviously pretty bad, but I do feel like they're on a different trajectory where at least they're kind of on the upswing and you can kind of see them starting to become more of like the identity that Shiano is trying to establish there. You mentioned like it is, I think a legitimately pretty good defense this year and not just by Rutgers Stanford standards, but by like big 10 standards. And they've got a lot coming back. They've got, former Michigan transfer Aaron Lewis at defensive end, who's probably their best player overall. Linebacker Deion Jennings, corner Max Melton, plus a couple of um, up transfers like from group of five schools in the secondary who look like they could be real players. So it's a pretty good group. And, well, that's the good news. <laughs> and you get to the offense, and they've averaged uh, an SP-plus ranking of 110th on offense over the last seven years, which is really abysmal. I mean, when you put that into, like, you know, bad even by by any standards, like not just by Big Ten standards. So kind of the reverse of the defense, right? No, I mean, there are, what, 130, what? I think we're at 133 now because there are a couple teams transitioning up this year. Right, in but, FBS. Like, if you're at 110th, you're bad by all accounts, not just Power right, 5 yes. accounts, not just by Big Ten accounts. Like, you're just fucking bad, period. Right, like one of the worst handful of Power 5 schools, yeah, by any measurement. They did bring in former Minnesota and Penn State offensive coordinator Kirk Sirocco to presumably try to make things a little bit less unwatchable and, and I think simpler. If you remember right, when he was at Minnesota, that was when Tanner Morgan was having kind of his strong years early in his career. They were running a lot of RPO stuff. So I think they're going to probably try to build something more like that. And I think that might be good for Gavin Wimsatt, who seems to have fully taken hold of the quarterback job. We saw him last year against Michigan, right? And you could see some ability there. I think he was one of their higher-rated recruits maybe of the last like decade. And he's got some talent. But he also had a 44% completion percentage, which is a, a big yikes. And then if you look kind of around him, you've got the O-line and the receiver groups are basically starting entirely over after massive personnel losses. They do have, I think, one potential difference maker in running back Samuel Brown, the fifth, who was actually starting to look pretty good last year as a freshman. He Wait was, a minute. I thought the whole thing about Rutgers running backs was that they recruit them and identify them, and then they commit to Rutgers and then decommit and go somewhere else and are awesome, a la Jonathan Taylor. I didn't think they were allowed to Saquon have Barkley. actual... Yeah, and Saquon Barkley. I didn't think they were allowed to have actual... Well, it's still early, early in his career. He was only a freshman, illegal. so he could go somewhere else and be even better. That I guess that scenario is still kind of this is against the rules (laughs) you're not allowed to actually have a good running no you're only allowed to have him be briefly committed to you before going somewhere else and being (laughs) awesome i thought those were the terms of the contract that is the destiny of of rutgers running backs um but i mean for right now he's still there and he did look pretty good last year as a freshman he was averaging like four and a half yards a carry on reasonably high volume before he went down for the year like halfway through the season with a foot injury so I think with him and maybe Wimsat, you know, kind of taking a step forward as a sophomore, there might be a little bit there, but that's another one like Indiana. They just don't, they don't feel like they have enough there to be anything other than really bad on offense. So pretty good defense, really bad offense, 
And with that being said, even with the kind of general upward trajectory that I think Shiano's got them on, you're probably talking about like four and eight or maybe five and seven is the absolute ceiling for this team. They're at least a year away, I would say, from a bowl game. That's probably right. Does that bring us to our comparison? It does. You want me to go with this one or or you got it? I'll take it. We decided that the Rutgers team in 2023 is the Department of Education lawyers who had the task of arguing in favor of student loan forgiveness in front of the Supreme Court. This is a very specific This scenario. is so niche. And you think the lawyer came up with it, but it also was not me. This is, this is all Matthew. But it's just, you know, they're at a structural disadvantage. They're fighting. They're arguing. They're doing what they can. But they, they know the Supreme Court is hostile to the position that they're taking. And it's just... They've just got an uphill battle. It's like, too it's a much lot to, overcome. to overcome for them to make any real tangible strides towards winning that fight. And At least right now. Maybe a few years from now. And, and check back. And that's that. So, sorry, Rutgers. Sorry, Department of Ed. <laughs> sorry, borrowers, I guess. <laughs> right. Oh, God, now we're getting into the good shit. Okay, this is not actually a troll this time. At number five is your Michigan State Spartans. I love this for me. <laughs> I've waited so long. Yeah, this was the part we were really excited to get to, as you can imagine. Uh, so, let's do it. And I don't think it's an... Like, we're not even really being homers. Like, I don't think this is an indefensible position to take. I mean, look at who's left. I mean, we, we know what the math is. Maryland, Penn State, Michigan, and Ohio State are left after this. Yeah, no, it will take a lot. And, and we'll it, talk about this. But it, like, it's very unlikely that this team finishes I'm in not the top even trolling. three or four of like, the division. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's tough it sledding for them. That's right. Yeah. And it's tough sledding for, I mean, a lot of reasons. We're going to talk about them. Peyton Thorne is gone. Transferred to Auburn. Keon Coleman, also gone, transferred to Florida State. And if you remember in the aftermath of this, a lot of Michigan State fans kind of concocted this fantasy scenario where this was actually good because it meant that Thorne was very clearly going to lose the starting job to Noah Kim. But Copium. <laughs> yeah. That's called copium. That was some big-time po- copium. I mean, keep in mind that Peyton Thorne was headed into his third year as a starter and had generally been like a pretty good Big Ten starter, above average, I would say. Never great, but like solidly above average. Meanwhile, Kim had never thrown a meaningful pass in a college game, was not a very highly touted recruit. And the idea that they were just going to stick Thorne on the bench and turn things over, I I just, I can't really buy that. And on top of that, Keon Coleman immediately after... Yeah, when your number one receiver finds out they're going to be catching passes from Noah Kim and decides the thing that they're going to do is enter the transfer portal. Like within an hour? I don't really think that's an endorsement of Noah Kim's abilities. That just... Exactly. It was not... leaves here. It was not a good sign. And uh, either way, it is now the Noah Kim era. He's got all of 19 garbage time passing attempts and one decent spring ball showing to his name. Whether he's actually any good from what we've seen, which was, again, not a lot, I think he's probably okay. But even if he is, and that's probably kind of the upside for this year, he is not going to have a lot of help, especially with Coleman gone. I just, I don't know who the best player is on that offense. I mean, Jalen Berger is just kind of a guy at running back. Trey Mosley okay receiver I guess JD Duplain has made a couple all big 10 teams at guard so that's something and um Nick Samak's a decent center they brought in a a Juco transfer lineman and Keyshawn Blackstock so maybe the offensive line is going to be not bad which would be an improvement but the more I look at that offense the more I just realize that like they desperately needed Coleman to be the go-to guy who could kind of threaten down the field and stretch out the defense because 
with an average at best line. I mean, that was every play they had against Michigan well, right. last year. That was so literally the offense, period. And it's going to be, I think, even more that way because, well, like I said, Thorne was, I think, pretty decent, like above average. And when you take that away and you have, again, just a, a so-so offensive line, even if it's improved, a not difference-making running back and a bunch of just guys at receiver and tight end, plus Kim getting thrown into his first real playing time, I, I just have no idea what single thing this team's going to be good at on offense. And it wasn't a lot last year. Like you said, it was basically when they got up against legit defenses, it was throw jump balls to Keon Coleman. And with that gone and with Thorne gone, like I, I have no idea what they've got. I just don't see it. So I think it's going to be a pretty rough year for them on it offense. It wasn't just Keon Coleman. They had another guy last year, right? They did have Jaden Reed. That's there fair. Jaden Reed was a, a good receiver. My brain just like, I was like, what is his name? I like, I forgot about it, but I knew who he was. And maybe In I'm overweighting, <laughs> maybe I'm overweighting the Michigan game, but that is kind of the lens that I'm viewing this through to some extent. And Michigan really took him away. Don't I mean, worry. It's the lens they're viewing it too. Also. That is the lens they view everything through at yeah. all times. So yeah, that, that's totally fair. But yeah, I mean, Reed was a legit receiver. I didn't mean to take that away from him, but when Michigan took him away, and some teams were able to kind of take him away. Like, again, it was basically throw jump balls to Coleman, and they don't have that this year, and they don't really have anything else that you can look at and say, well, they should be good at that. So they've got a lot of work to do there to figure out something or have any sort of identity on the offensive side I don't of the ball. know, man. What about that really strong secondary that they feel? <laughs> Does that mean we should talk about the defense? I mean, we're there, right? <laughs> I think we can, we can transition to that. No, I, I do think the defense will be better than the offense, um, especially in the front seven. That's a pretty good group. They've got Cal Halliday coming back. I think he's a legit good linebacker. Simeon Barrow and Derek Harmon on the interior of the line. A few decent ends in Jacoby Winman, Chris Bogle, Aaron Brule, a couple transfers they brought in. Like When you look at the front seven and you kind of go position by position, that's a, an area where they don't have a lot of weaknesses and they have, I think, at least a couple guys who are good Big Ten starters. So they should be able to stop the run. The Pass rush, I think, is a little bit iffier. Um, Winman, I thought, looked like a decent pass rusher when he came in last year. And then because of injuries and other nonsense, they ended up having to play him more at linebacker, and he wasn't very good there. But he's probably the only guy they've got that I see being like kind of a, I don't know, maybe an X factor in like the pass rush. Chris Bogle a little bit too. He was hurt early last year, so didn't get as much um, healthy time on the field as, as they probably wanted. And Maybe he makes a little bit of a difference. But anyway, I, I do think they'll be able to like stop the run reasonably well. The front seven will be pretty tough. And then, as you pointed out, you get to the secondary and woof. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we need to, uh, to spend a whole lot of time belaboring the point here about how bad the secondary has been. But when I mean, you go back to last year and Ohio State, Washington, basically anybody who had a legit passing game and wanted to use it was naming their score against Michigan State last year. And now they've lost Xavier Henderson to graduation, and he was the one good player in that secondary last year. They lost one of their starting corners in a mere speed, and that means they're still rolling out Angelo Gross, Charles Brantley, Chester Kimbrough, just all these guys along with a few others who basically couldn't get on the field last year, even you know despite all the awfulness. So there's just nothing back there, like talent-wise or performance-wise, and I also don't think Scotty Hazleton's a particularly good defensive coordinator. I just, other than like goal line situations where they can kind of load up on the interior, I, I've not seen really anything that indicates to me that they have a, a great sense of what they're doing, especially on the back end, given that that's been a disaster for 
you know, r- really all of the last three years. So the secondary is going to be bad again, barring Scotty Hazleton having some sort of coaching epiphany or Mel Tucker suddenly becoming not a uh, quote-unquote horseshit football coach in his words. It's very funny that he gave us those words. Like, I don't even have to, I don't even have to make that up, you know? Hey, at least he was honest about it. I, mean, I don't have to make it up. I it's from the horse's mouth, you know? Well, and when you come in as like a defensively oriented coach, and this is what you're putting on the field every year, where one, at least one part of your defense is such a shit show. I mean, and doesn't can't... he coach the secondary also? Yeah, like right. personally? Correct. Yes. Yeah. I think he's, uh, he might've taken on one of safeties or corners and brought in somebody else there. I, I can't remember exactly how the staff is structured at this point, but. Yeah, I mean, you can be the judge of that. Like, it's not a uh, it's not an indefensible statement um, based on what we've seen from that secondary. So, anyway, kind of looking at it from a holistic view, unless Noah Kim is like magically Johnny Football, it's pretty hard to see this team being any better than it was last year, if not worse, given what they lost, especially Keon Coleman. So, I, I think this is kind of another five and seven, maybe four and eight type team, depending on how things go and if they get a, a break or two in a close game. But it's uh, it's not going to be a good team, that's for sure. And with that uh, $95 million contract is looking better and better every year, isn't it? Yeah, I can't wait. If this year goes badly for them, you can expect an end-of-season podcast where I do the math on how much Michigan State is paying per win. <laughs> on Mel Tucker's contract. So cross your fingers for that because it will be funny. I will I will be deeply humored by this. Oh, it will be funny. As long as Michigan wasn't one of those wins. That's all the man has. I mean, like, he's got two wins over Michigan. That's the resume, right? Well, and, and one great Kenneth Walker season. Kenneth Walker personally delivered many tens of millions of dollars to Mel Tucker because otherwise he had... It's it's been very much the same thing where the offense is kind of okay, the defense is kind of okay, but has one horrific weakness that they can't overcome, and they had one great season with Kenneth Walker, and otherwise, it's uh yeah I mean it's looking like another five and seven, four and eight type of year. So, good news is at least the uh, the recruiting is really looking on the up and up there in East Lansing. I can't believe I mean like we're rec- as we record this on Monday evening, you know Michigan has lost the Aaron Scott recruitment to Ohio State. And like I Not cannot believe the amount of shit talk I'm hearing from the folks in East Lansing. Like they're talking shit. Like, I haven't even seen this sir. one. <laughs> like sir, your house is on fire. <laughs> what are you what are you looking at my house for? They're making fun of our barbecue. They're like doing all I'm like Look, they're shut down up. bad. All right. They Listen, got <laughs> Okay, aside. Would you eat that plate? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it looks... It's like, a hot dog I, and mac and... Also, I've, we've had big house food, right? Like, the mac and cheese is actually pretty good. And I don't the hot know dogs are, like, pretty same, normal hot... Uh, yeah, like, it's probably the same. But, like, my point is, I'm 31 years old, and I would eat the fuck out of the mac and cheese and chicken tendies. I don't know what the problem is. Like, I, I understand that it is objectively not barbecue, but I also understand that I would probably make that plate for myself in that situation. So, like, I don't understand what the problem is. I thought the criticism was more that it wasn't, like, you know, Zingerman's catering quality food, basically. That it was just, like, very generic, you know, hot dogs and mac and cheese, like stadium food. We don't know that it wasn't, which is to say, like, how do we know that that's not what that kid put on his plate because he has toddler palate, just like (laughs) I have toddler palate. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's it's not necessarily a representative sample. That's fair. You know what I That's mean? Fair. Like I would eat the I mac and cheese. I don't actually know. Yeah. 
you know whatever oh, i'll this, eat any any mac and cheese anytime yeah it, this doesn't matter i'm just saying keep an eye on your own house spartans <laughs> okay y'all got you y'all got your own problems okay don't you don't need to worry about what's going on over here all right comparison, comparison? time 2023 comparison we are going with twitter which you know can't be good right the premise here is that things were reasonably good a couple of years ago, and since then it's been pretty much a complete shit show being run by a guy the Slappies are pretty sure is a mastermind for some reason, but is actually clearly in way over his head. And there's little to nothing that's happening that provides any reason to think that things are going to get better anytime soon. So, yeah, that, that sounds like Twitter and Michigan State football, right? 100%. Note that this is bad for Twitter as Twitter users, or like bad for us as Twitter users, but also good for us as Michigan fans. Right, people so. are looking around at Blue Sky and they're like, what up? <laughs> mm, looks you pretty know? Good. They're looking yeah. at threads, they're like, what up? And I <laughs> kind of feel like that's what Keon Coleman and Peyton Thorne did, so <laughs> I think it works. Does that mean Florida State is Blue Sky or Auburn is Blue Sky? Does this extend outside of the Big Ten? Maybe. I don't know. Auburn's too chaotic to be like Blue Sky or threads. I don't know. That's we'll figure it fair. out. Maybe, actually, we will not figure it out. I'm not spending <laughs> any time thinking about what Auburn is as a practical matter. Yep, moving on. <laughs> so, with Michigan State 5, we're now into the top, uh, not quite the top half, but half-ish, I guess, of the division. And the point you made earlier, like, it, it, there's a pretty clear delineation here of, like, tiers within the Big Ten. Michigan State was pretty clearly ahead of Indiana and Rutgers, but pretty clearly behind the rest of the teams here. And at number four, we've got Maryland, who I think is kind of in the same boat. Like, they're not quite on the tier of the teams to come, but... They do have kind of a, a Maryland thing going, which is to say it's Talia Tagovailoa coming back. It's a lot of talent at receiver and tight end. Good passing game, solid run game and O-line, a fine but not really difference-making defense, and probably 8-4. and four. That's just kind of what they are at this point. It's been more or less the same team for the last two years, right? Like 2021, 2022, and now going into 2023, it doesn't really look like a substantively different team. So the one thing you can say about this program is that it very much does have an identity right now, both good and bad. And with Tagovailoa coming back, I actually thought that was a little bit of a surprise to me. I thought he might end up either declaring for the draft or... I was very surprised by that. And he mentioned just the other day that he had offers for, what do you say, it was a million and a half dollars, 1.5 million he had as a, a transfer to go to... SEC yeah, An unnamed SEC school, which I, I saw... It's funny, I saw some people on Twitter saying, like, you can just say Auburn, bro. And other people being like, well, obviously this was Bama. Or, you know, people have their <laughs> opposing ideas of exactly I mean, who this was. Bama really had a hole there. And, like, we all know that they have a Tagovailoa connection. Well, and he was there. He actually was at Alabama as a freshman before he transferred to Maryland. I did not remember that. He was there very briefly with Tua, if I remember right. But he left, I think, when Tua declared for the draft. Anyway, so he was there briefly. But, yeah, I could see Alabama making sense trying to bring in, like, an established pretty good starting quarterback as you know maybe the like filling the one hole they have on that team that could you know potentially keep them from making the playoff or, or winning a national title could be uh, Auburn or you know could be fuck I don't know A&M like <laughs> he, he, he was vague enough about it that I don't really know who it was but anyway it's nice for Maryland they get him back um, because he's probably the second best quarterback in the league I would say behind JJ at least Depending what we get out of Ohio State. Yeah, or, you know, until Kyle McCord shows up and puts up Ohio State. Right, 40 touchdowns and whatever. Or, or Penn State, Drew Aller, we're going to talk about him more. But th there are a couple guys in the Big Ten who I think very easily could end up 
like leapfrogging him during the year. But from what we've seen going in, I think he's pretty clearly the second best quarterback in the Big Ten, and that's a nice starting point. Um, on top of that, at receiver, they have um, they did lose Raheem Jarrett and Dante Demas, so meaningful losses there. But they do still have Jayshon Jones, a couple of solid transfers coming in in Caden Prather, who's kind of one of those long, jumpy outside guys, a little bit like Raheem Jarrett. And uh, Tyrese Chambers, who's probably going to be the starting slot guy after putting up some like pretty wild numbers at Florida International last year. So it's the standard Maryland, you know, really talented receiver group. They also bring back tight end Corey Deitches, who's a really good athlete, a fun player. We saw him make some pretty impressive plays against Michigan last year. And Roman Hemby, who took over as a starter at running back last year during the season as a freshman, was pretty effective, largely because he's just kind of one of those like powerful bowling ball types and Maryland stretches you out so much in the passing game that you get a lot of light boxes. So all in all, it, it works pretty well. Um, the bad news for the offense is that the line is getting kind of got decimated by exits Four starters, either graduated or transferred. So they've got Delmar Glaze coming back at tackle and then a bunch of up transfers and young guys. It seems like it could be kind of a, a problem spot overall that keeps them from maybe hitting the, the ceiling that they otherwise could have on offense with the talent they've got. Um, on defense, they've got sort of a similar problem, I would say, in that the line got, again, hit hard by graduations and is going to be almost entirely new and or inexperienced guys this year. So that's not an ideal starting point. Um, they're kind of the inverse of Michigan State, I would say, in that they have a pretty good amount of skill in the back seven between linebacker Jayshon Barham, safety Bo Brady, Cincinnati transfer Jaquan Shepard at corner, plus just generally a pretty good amount of experience scattered around in the secondary. So if the D-line holds up, the defense should be like fine to pretty good, probably about on par with the offense. But I guess the overarching question with this team is just whether it's the same as it's been, like we pointed out at the beginning, right? Like they've kind of got an identity, and it looks like another version of 2021-2022 Maryland. And the downside of that is that obviously both of the last two years they've just completely collapsed in November, right, because of injuries or just general whatever, you know, just kind of losing losing steam over the course of the season. And, I mean, if you look back at the last two years, their only November win was against Rutgers. And at some point, you just you have to win more games, right? It can't always be September Maryland, and then you lose three out of the last four, and you go eight and five. Like, it can be. <laughs> Maybe it will be again. But at some point, if you're ever going to be more than that and move up beyond, like, the clear middle tier of the conference – you've got to actually finish strong. And this year, I think the schedule sets up a little bit better for them. They do get Ohio State early, and they get Michigan State early. They get Illinois early-ish in October. But they still get Michigan and Penn State in November. And so on the whole, you look at them, and it's like, okay, this is probably kind of the same team. The schedule's maybe a little bit more friendly, so maybe 9-3. and three. I mean, that, to be fair for Maryland, that would be pretty good in this division where you've got Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State to get past. It's just going to be a lot, like, it's asking a lot to do much more than that, given, again, what the teams are ahead of them and what Maryland has to work with, even though it's a pretty good group. It's just it doesn't have the overall, like, talent level or, you know, it doesn't it doesn't match up with Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State at this stage. So it's pretty clearly the number four team, which is a, a little bit of progress for them from what they were three, four, five years ago. But that's probably all it is. Yeah, I mean, they're mid. Yeah, or like I mean, the definition of mid, basically. Yeah, oh. that could be a twenty twenty three thing, actually. Just like the <laughs> they word could just mid, be mid. <laughs> mid is like very twenty twenty three. 
I should point out, by the way, that uh, a little fun tidbit here. That Josh Gaddis is now back as offensive coordinator, co-offensive coordinator, along with Kevin Sumlin under Mike Loxley. So that's kind of a, a random assortment of, of guys having fun together. Could be uh <laughs> Well, that's so funny because do you remember when they were like taking shots at each other? Oh, yeah, yeah. About like who was calling Alabama's offense or whatever. Right, that's what makes it fun, right? Is that Gaddis and Loxley <laughs> having were... having a mid-off. <laughs> they are having a mid-off. <laughs> like, come on. That's funny. I like it. Yeah, no, Maybe that could be a fun storyline. I don't know why we didn't pick mid. Well, I think you've got a pretty fun comparison here. Correct. So for Maryland in 2023, I've picked what who I believe to be one of the greatest artists of a generation <laughs> as the comp, an artist that is currently headed out on tour, generating a lot of buzz. If you think I'm talking about Taylor Swift, you're delusional because <laughs> the answer is obviously Pitbull, Mr. 305. <laughs> and honestly, calling them mid and then saying that they're Pitbull is almost that seems insult- unfair to it's Pitbull. almost unfair to no, it's and it's unfair to me. I love Pitbull. Anybody who knows knows that your girl is a Pitbull stan. But, Pitbull's nothing but bangers, honestly. But that's the point, right? They have an identity. It's not changing. Every Pitbull song sounds exactly the same, and every Maryland game is exactly the same. And they are pretty good at what they do. They're pretty good at what they do. They're going to entertain you. Like that's a fun team to yeah. watch. They're going to entertain you. You're, you're, they're gonna win sometimes. Sometimes they're gonna they're gonna put out like a really crappy song that sucks, like "Feel This Moment" with Christina Aguilera, <laughs> and it's like not good. And they'll lay an egg, but like for the most part, like they're putting out bangers at a seventy five percent clip, and they know what they are, and it works, and it's not groundbreaking, and it's not revolutionary, but it's fun and a little chaotic, and they're pitbull, Mister Three Hundred Five. See you in November, baby, Mister Worldwide. <laughs> The one and only. I'm serious that I love Pitbull. I love it. That's a fun one. We did, like, as most of you know, we just got married and the wedding playlist had like seven Pitbull songs. Like, I was like, I, we have to have it. Like bangers. I said, nothing but bangers. Bangers after bangers. But now we get to the actual contenders, right, in this division. And obviously we all know who they are. And I think we all know approximately what order they're going to be in. Third, we have Penn State. And I don't think that's a surprise to literally anybody who's paid attention to the sport this decade. No, probably not. I, I do think that Penn State's a pretty interesting team because if you poke just about like any national college football, you know, writer, broadcaster, whatever, or like the college football preview magazines, basically everybody has Penn State somewhere in the top 10, like six, seven in that range. And I, it's interesting because. The thing is, they're not necessarily wrong. Like, I, I do think that this could be both the third best team in the Big Ten East and the number five, six, seven team nationally, given what I think we have a pretty good sense Michigan and Ohio State are going to be. But James Franklin at Penn State, you know, he's had several of these teams that have been, let me take a step back. James Franklin's Penn State teams have been really good at being really good, and that's exactly where they've topped out. They've won 11 games four times in the past seven years. And if you were to take that on its face, you would say, like, well, it's like really impressive, especially in that division. They've also never finished higher than seventh. And that's exactly what they did last year, actually. They went 11-2, and two, beat Utah in the Rose Bowl, finished number seven. And it was just kind of a, a good Penn State team, right? Like, they held in – remember, they held on pretty well against Ohio State for a lot of that game. And then the fourth quarter – it kind of fell apart. Ohio State 
sort of pulled away one by like 11 i want to say like a couple scores yeah, that's right. It was kind of similar against Michigan, and right? And it was a little bit of implosion stuff, too. Didn't they throw, like, yes. three picks to JTT? Like, how many picks I think are you going to throw two. to a defensive yeah. lineman? <laughs> I think he had two in that game. But, yeah, it was. It, it felt like a little bit of a shooting yourself in the foot situation. And then the Michigan game was, I mean, frankly, Michigan pretty well dominated that game, and it felt a little bit unfortunate and annoying that Penn State was actually in that game coming out of halftime. Remember the JJ threw that weird, like, ball off a helmet pick, and all of a sudden it was like, yeah, we're like totally in control of this game, but also score-wise, we're not. <laughs> and it feels like a game that could go really stupidly. And then very quickly, it was Michigan actually in complete control. So like, it didn't really feel like Penn State was meaningfully closer to being more than what they had been. They were just what they are, which is like a good team that's not on Ohio State's level or not on Michigan's level, like depending on the year. It also felt like that game was a little odd. I have nothing to support this except vibes, which is how I podcast. But it's the only way there was the thing I compare it to is the 2018 Wisconsin game, which, if you remember, was a game that Wisconsin was very much in through the first half. But like Michigan was winning, but Wisconsin was very much in this game. I think Michigan was maybe up six or seven at the half. Correct. And then for whatever reason, Paul Christ was like, we can't run the ball anymore. Like, like. Jonathan Taylor's averaging six yards a carry, but we can't run the ball anymore. And he just stopped running the ball in the second half and decided to sling it around with whatever noodle arm Wisconsin quarterback. Was Alex Hornibrook at that point? Yeah, every Wisconsin quarterback is the same person. They're all Alex Hornibrook, (laughs) even if they're not Alex Hornibrook. So I think it literally was Alex Hornibrook, but I don't remember. And like, it was one of those things where I was just like, you, you kind of outsmarted yourself. Like, just keep running the ball with the best running back in the country. Like, why are you doing this? And it kind of felt like that's the way Penn State played defense last year in in that game. Like, I was just like, why why are you being, I, I don't know, just something about it felt like the coaching and the game plan was off. Like, well, it was I think that's true of a lot of Penn State games. I mean, that's sort of the, been the underlying problem, right, is that when they get up against teams that are similarly talented or more talented, since 2016, they've really not shown an ability to win those games. And, again, if you're similarly talented or more talented and you can't win those games, there's one <laughs> one clear issue there, which is coaching, right? I mean, it's, it's hard to really argue that, like, they're not good at what they're trying to do when, again, they've won 11 games four times in seven years, and they keep, they keep being really good, but it does seem like there's a gap there. It's just, it felt a little bit like the game planning was off, the way they were thinking about game flow was off, and that they got a little Don Brown also. Like, I also just, I mean, Michigan did whatever they wanted on both sides of the ball all game. I'm not even sure. Like, how are you going to give up like 400 rushing yards? Like, <laughs> like that's like, they just didn't have an answer, right? Wrong. Yeah. Like, there, there's something about your strategy there that was off if you're giving up 400 rushing yards. I don't know what it is because I'm not smart enough to tell you. There are smarter football commentators out there who will tell you than I am. But what I will tell you is that if what I'm saying is, I think that result was unnecessarily lopsided because of game planning and coaching error in the same way that that 2018 Wisconsin game ended up unnecessarily lopsided because Paul Christ inexplicably was like, I'm not going to hand the ball off to to. Jonathan Taylor anymore, which didn't really make sense. And but this is the same reason that every of that that vibe. That's all I'm saying. It's vibes. I'm am yeah. here for the vibes. But this is the same reason that every off season we like cackle at the top coaches list when James Franklin Correct. is like James... number five or whatever. Yeah. 
like no. good coach, but just every every time they get up against a good Michigan team or a good Ohio State team, you just come out of it thinking like uh, that just that felt like a missed opportunity. Like Penn State could could have been there but wasn't because of something that's not talent. Now I'm getting scared about Penn State. Like, what if this is the year that James Franklin, like, has an epiphany? Well, and this is – that's what makes it so interesting is that I, I do think people are more optimistic about this Penn State team. And the reason they are is also the thing that kind of makes them the most potentially volatile, and that's Drew Aller at quarterback. And it's kind of wild that people are, like, so excited about this year versus last year because, I mean, they just had Sean Clifford. and He started 46 games, went to two New Year's Six Bowls, He's, I was looking up some stats, obviously, to pull these numbers. And I mean, he's in the top 10 in Big Ten history and like a bunch of passing stats. And he did all that despite some pretty awful O-line play for a lot of his career. Like there were games where he got really abused. And I like genuinely felt kind of bad for the physical toll that he was taking to do what he needed to do to carry some of those Penn State teams. And yet, <laughs> like despite all of that, there's all of this. Oh, okay, but Drew Aller's the guy. Like he's he's definitely going to be better or already is better to the point where now they're a national title contender. I've got to tell Penn State fans, I know it's not like a pure statistical thing, but like Sean Clifford was a significantly above average Big Ten quarterback, I think. Like he's not he's not Ohio State's quarterbacks, but you don't land in the top ten in all of those stats without being like a significantly better than average. Big he also had that dog in big time. He did. Like he that was dude totally... laid it on the line all the fucking time. And like statistically, not that many people can be significantly above average. That's what <laughs> right. that means, right? Yeah. As a practical matter. And that's not to say that Aller doesn't have the talent. We all know he was like a highly touted recruiter or whatever. But it's a really tall order to expect a first-year starter to come in and be substantially better than what is already a historic above-average Big Ten quarterback. Like, yeah. I, like it's 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 wild to me how many people are not only predicting that but expecting it. Yeah, that to me feels like an overreach. That that feels really aggressive as far as the projections go, and that's part of the reason. I personally am not as bullish on Penn State as I feel like the national media is. That's not to say I still think they're going to finish third in the division and probably compete for like the top 10. But people who are like, okay, they're going to be threatening for the playoff this year. Like that's the thing where I'm like, they didn't really threaten for the playoff last year. No. And because by the end of October, he has to be like meaningfully better than Sean Clifford to get you in that position. And the guy was real good. Yeah, yeah. So like that just feels like a really aggressive. Like if you're, you know, you're trying to project something and you're making assumptions. That feels it's like you know people are like talking about your retirement and they're like, well, if you assume a fourteen percent return a year, and it's like where the who the fuck is getting a fourteen percent return a year? You know what I mean? Like try eight, buddy. Like fourteen. Try six. Like, what, what do you mean fourteen? And that's what this feels like. That's what that's what the projections of Drew Aller feel like to me right now. And could he be that? Could you yield fourteen? Maybe. But like, it does feel like a really aggressive assumption to make when you're projecting Penn State. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think the it's funny because the comparison here. I think it feels a lot like what Michigan was last year with JJ, right? Where it was like Aller was even higher rated than JJ. Actually, I think he was like a maybe top five overall prospect to a couple of the recruiting sites. 
and they're looking at this saying, okay, they had like good quarterback play, and this guy is maybe the you know who, who gets them over the top, who can like from a physical talent passer standpoint, he's the guy who can get them to competing at like the national title level or you know getting them onto that stage at least in a way that maybe Sean Clifford couldn't. And maybe that's right. Like on talent, that's pretty hard to argue that he's not a step ahead of Sean Clifford. But I mean, we saw him last year. He played a little bit, mostly in garbage time. I think he completed like 53% of his passes. He looked, you know, like a talented guy who was not really ready. So is he ready this year to like make that leap? Like you said, that's it's asking a lot. It's probably not the most likely outcome. Is it possible? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we saw it kind of with JJ, right? And For sure. Could that happen here? Yeah, it could. Um, and if, if it does, I think a lot of it's probably going to have to do with the team around him, which I think that's the other part of it is that I do think this Penn State team with what they have coming back looks to be in slightly better position in terms of like a supporting cast than some of the ones that Clifford had that he it felt like was kind of carrying. Um, they have probably the best non-Blake Corum, non-Donovan Edwards running back combo in the country and Nick Singleton and Katron Allen. I mean, Singleton was really impressive last year. They have a first-team All-American left tackle in Olu Fashanu who came back. The rest of the line, to me, is still kind of iffy, and same with the receivers. That's a group that I think it's the first year in a little while for Penn State where nobody jumps out among the receiver core as a difference maker. That group has kind of trailed off over the last couple of years. So that's one spot where if you're expecting Aller to really take a leap, you kind of have to have some faith that the receivers are also going to take a step forward, and that's, again, with what they have, I'm not sure. Um, so that's a, a little bit of a question mark. The defense, though, should be really good. Kalen King is a corner who's kind of on the Will Johnson track, looked like one of the best freshmen in the country last year and should be, like, All-America caliber this year. Chop Robinson and Adisa Isaac are really excellent edge guys. Abdul Carter at linebacker. In the secondary, they've got John Dixon and Keaton Ellis coming back. Like, all three levels you look, and it's like, eh, they're in pretty good shape. The interior D-line is probably the only area on the defense that I'm not sure what they're going to have there with P.J. Mustafer gone. He was pretty good last year. He did get his ass kicked in the Michigan game. <laughs> but that was also what the Michigan interior O-line did to pretty much everybody all year. So didn't necessarily fault him too much for that. But anyway, he's gone, and they don't have like a real obvious replacement there. But if they're even like okay enough on the interior, it's probably a top 10 defense nationally. So... Again, you put that with the running game and what should be a little bit better offensive line, and you know if Aller kind of takes that at least somewhat of a step, it's going to be a really good team. It's just like we were talking about earlier with Penn State. Is it a great team? I don't know. Like you kind of have to, you kind of have to be willing to buy on Aller and, and take a little bit of, of a leap of faith there, especially with what we talked about with the James Franklin coaching and especially the offense. It feels like that's always kind of been the area that's like a little bit janky the Penn State defenses have generally been pretty good but the offense it just it always feels like there's something that's not quite there unless they have Saquon Barkley and Nick Sanders is really good but I don't think he's Saquon Barkley correct there there's a lot of moments where you're watching this and I felt this way about Michigan's offense a lot of times I complained about it a lot with respect to Michigan's offense in the Penn State game in 2021 specifically the one that Mm -hmm. you know ended with Eric all, you know, like, and that the all too well, the all touchdown. too well touchdown. Yeah. That's what I'll call it till the end of time. Um, but like, 
I've always, you know, looked around at Michigan's offense in the past and been like, this is held together by like scotch tape and hopes and dreams, you know? And well, it felt a like they always made things. Offense feels like that still as yeah. in non Saquon Barkley times. It almost felt, I mean, for a while at least, if you go back to, you know, the, the early parts of the Jim Harbaugh tenure, up, basically up until 2021, it often felt like the Michigan offense was set up in a way where it made things harder than they needed to be. Like everything was happening in constricted space and it just looked, it, it looked difficult. Basically every yard looked a little bit harder than it was for a good offense. And that's kind of, yeah, it's kind of how it's felt for Penn State sometimes. So that, I guess we're going to find out how much of that was quarterback play and how much of that was coaching and, you know, how, how closely those two are intertwined. Right. I mean, for Penn State to to get there, which we're not saying they can't. I think both of us think that they can, right? It's just, you know, it's one of those things. In the same vein, Michigan hadn't beaten Ohio State forever, and then in 2021, they just did. Until like, they did, yeah. The thing that doesn't happen just doesn't happen until one day it does, and that's what would need to happen for Penn State. Like, the things that they haven't been able to do so far, they're just going to have to do at some point in order yeah. to get over this hurdle, and that's why it's hard for me. It's hard for me to predict them doing it because history tells me they haven't been able to. That's in 2016, basically. But that doesn't mean it's impossible. Yeah, right. right. And and that's kind of where they are. Can they do it? Yeah, but they have to do the thing that they haven't been able to do yet for the first time. And I'm not going to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, I'm just not going to. Other people might. It's hard to take on faith. I didn't give Michigan the benefit of the doubt to do the thing they the things they were doing until they did them, and I'm not going to treat Penn State any better than I treat my favorite team. I think that's fair. Um, so yeah, we're we're gonna find out. Like maybe this is the year they do it, and we're back here in you know late December talking about hey they finally got over the hump and Penn State's going to the playoff or you know eleven and one they beat Ohio State they beat whatever it is you know. And it feels like they're really there, kind of, where they have not been able to get to before. Or maybe we're back here in a few months and they went 8-4 and four and we're saying LOL frames. They still can't coach offense and Drew Aller wasn't anything and actually Sean Clifford was pretty good and it would have been nice to have him back, maybe. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see. And that brings us to the 2023 comp. Do you want to do this one? I can take this one. We've got Sidney Sweeney. So this was kind of a... a we, we debated this one a little bit, but... It felt like the right fit because been doing some relatively big things, had a pretty good run here over the last few years, and now more recently has been getting kind of hyped up to another level as like the next big, big thing. And maybe that happens, you know, got the potential, got the, the whatever. And that being said, there have been a lot of, you know, next big thing things that never really panned out and ended up as just things. Like reasonably successful, but not the big thing that they were supposed to be in. That's kind of how this Penn State team feels. It's like they're getting that sort of hype. And whether they get there, we're going to find out. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Sydney Sweeney has been in what? White Lotus, Euphoria, Handmaid's Tale. She's got a couple of really, really prestige projects under her belt. And she's on the cusp of superstardom. Yeah, like she not quite really A-list, is. but like almost there. She's on the cusp of superstardom. And the question is... Is she going to do it or not? And I think Penn State's in the exact same position. Um, you know, I think she's got some sort of like action movie coming up where she's like mm-hmm. really, you know, getting to flex her acting chops. Um, that's getting like a lot of hype. And, and I guess that's the 
That's the question, right? Like, Do they taper or are they are they an A-lister? That's right. Find out. All right. So we've made it to the uh, the final two. And I don't think there's a whole lot of surprise here about which two are the final two. <laughs> At number two, we have, God, I've waited so long for this day. I've waited so long for this day. At number two, we have Ohio State. <laughs> And this is the first time in my life that I have ever, ever, ever thought about ranking the Big Ten before the season and not had Ohio State in the number one spot. Well, remember last in week. In my life. I know, yeah. No, it's it's really wild. Um, and it's funny because last week the, uh, the media poll came out, the Big Ten media poll, right? And Michigan was pretty comfortably number one. I think Michigan had, I don't remember, 23 first place votes or something like that. And Ohio State had like eight. It was pretty decisive. And it just took me back to the the comment we saw last year after the Michigan-Ohio State game when people were debating the playoff selection, right? And Ohio State looked at that point like they were going to be on the outside looking in because USC and TCU were looking like three and four in, in some order. Obviously, Ohio State ended up backing in because USC lost, but people were kind of debating like oh, TCU played a bunch of close games, the Big 12's not very good. And there was a comment from an Ohio State fan on Twitter, and they said, so TCU is getting credited for not playing in Michigan's division. And I, I don't even remember who it was, but somebody retweeted that and said, that's right, Michigan's division. And the, the media poll just kind of took me back to that because... Matt it, thinks about that tweet like three times a day. Correct. It, li- it literally <laughs> lives in his head. He's going to frame it. it. Frame. It's going to become a mural in our like bedroom wall. But there's just something about like those four words that so perfectly encapsulated the state of this right now where it's like okay 2021 that happened we finally did it and it was amazing and magical and at the same time in the back of our heads there was a lot of i mean i think every logical michigan fan felt okay but was that like 2011 where we got one and then it you know and then we don't win another one for a fucking decade like it was it was a fluke and we're gonna look back in a few years and say we should have done more. Like we just couldn't sustain it and it didn't really mean anything. But 2022 wasn't that 2022 was going to Ohio state and winning in their place with perfect weather. There were no possible excuses. And after that, you kind of have to say like, yeah, Michigan's Michigan's at the top right now. And Ohio state is the one that has to prove it. And the media poll bears that out, right? Like Michigan is a decisive number one. It is Michigan's division for right now. So Ohio State gets to be number two. Like I said, I've been waiting for this day for a really long time. <laughs> it is really difficult not to think of them as the measuring stick. They've been the measuring stick for so long. Well, they still are, kind of. It, yeah, I think that's right. And for me, I mean, when we're ranking one and two here, right, we obviously know who we think one is at this point by process of elimination. But for me, you know, one and two is basically separated by a hair and the thing that is separating them to me is number one Michigan will get this game at home and number two Michigan will be returning its starting quarterback and Ohio State is not and that to me is the margin period that's that's it that's really it I I don't know what else to say about that but I I think there's probably a a little bit more that we can get to as we kind of dive into the 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 preview here Um, but I do want to point out that I mean, you mentioned like Ohio State being the measuring stick or, or not the measuring stick. And I, I say they still kind of are because like 
the first 11 games of the year, as we watch Michigan, we're still going to be looking at, can we get past Ohio State, right? And that's kind of question number one. And there's going to be question number two of like, okay, in, in the back of our mind, if we get past Ohio State, like, can we win the whole thing? Because that's very clearly a, a stated goal from a lot of people around this team this year. Like that, that goal is out there and it's not just a, a pipe dream. But from a measuring stick standpoint, I mean, Ryan Day is 31-2 and two in the Big Ten in four years as a coach and 45-6 and six overall, which is really stupid. And yet, I'm not going to say he gets fired if he loses like pretty badly to Michigan again for the third year in a row, but I am going to say it's possible, even with a, you know, it would be like a 93% conference winning percentage or something like that. The bar is just that high for Ohio State, given what they've been for a long time, like most of our lifetimes. And as Michigan fans, we know exactly how frustrating it is, or how it can be at least, to be extremely good, like maybe even national title worthy, but also have an infuriating ability to get past the one measuring stick or obstacle that really matters. We've been there, right? Pretty recently. Doesn't sound familiar. <laughs> and that's that's just where Ohio State's at right now. I mean, and this year they do get a couple of challenges that, like you mentioned, the quarterback situation. On top of that, they have a changeover at offensive coordinator with Kevin Wilson leaving for Tulsa and Brian Hartline getting promoted. It sounds like he's going to be maybe play caller. It's still kind of unclear if that's going to be more day's world or if that's something that Brian Hartline is going to take over. But they've got that to deal with in addition to the transition away from Coleridge Bernard Stroud the fourth. Amazing name, by the way. I still don't know where the J comes from. Yeah, it doesn't actually make sense. CJ, Coleridge Bernard. I don't get it. I don't get it. Someone explain it to me like I'm five. Well, he is the fourth, so maybe it was like a Coleridge Junior kind of thing, but he's not really a junior. No, it's the fourth. It's not the same thing as junior. (laughs) Um, Speaking of which, he he definitely didn't have his legacy defined by losing to Michigan. I think he made that pretty clear that 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 didn't mean anything, right? Come on. We've done this too many times. (laughs) Moving on. All right, so... In C.J. Stroud's absence, we have uh, probably sophomore Kyle McCord as the next guy in line for the, you know, standard 3,500-yard, 40-touchdown Heisman finalist season. He'll probably do all that because that's just what Ohio State does. But just for just like for a second, imagine if he didn't. It could be. They're gonna have some trouble because it, it could be really fun. I mean, that's the thing, right? They have elite quarterback play year after year after year after year and the most tantalizing possible possibility for us Michigan fans is that this is the year that for the first time in I don't know almost 10 years that they don't yeah maybe more than 10 years I I can't even uh, right (laughs) I mean like it it's hard to call like I don't know is Braxton Miller like elite quarterback play like I'm not sure like that's I mean he wasn't elite college quarterback play but it's not like right he wasn't like elite nfl but also that's not what ohio state was at that point it was elite quarterback play in the sense that like he was a legit heisman candidate because that's what urban meyer's offense was built around so they still had elite quarterback play just in a different structure correct and they fully transitioned to something different while somehow maintaining that elite quarterback play every year which has been kind of infuriating but anyway i think that what you just mentioned that's why a lot of the Ohio State people seemed super anxious or angsty or something coming out of the spring game because McCord was 
18 for 34 in that game and looked pretty shaky, especially on like the intermediate stuff where you kind of make your money in that offense, including about three, three or four terrible throws that probably should have been picked off. I mean, it was the spring game and like, you, you never know if that is going to end up meaning anything, um, especially when Michigan doesn't get them until November and they've had a chance to kind of iron things out. But it was interesting to me that Ryan Day said at media days that that is still technically an open competition between McCord and redshirt freshman Devin Brown, and that it might carry into the season, which is not not really how that was supposed to go <laughs> with the kind of heir apparent situation there and McCord being the backup last year. Like They had a what appeared to be a pretty clear plan in place of like McCord's the next guy, he's the starter going into the spring, and it hasn't exactly turned out to be like a very decisive situation in the way that I think they hoped that it would be. So it's it's really fun and and maybe not that hard to imagine that Ohio State maybe eventually has like one offense that just has mid quarterback play and isn't a fucking flamethrower. <laughs> and to your point, that would probably mean not great things for the overall outcomes, right? Like that's that's what they've been built around ever since Ryan Day got there, and I'm even really before that, to some extent. The idea of not great things happening to that program for like I don't know the first time in forever, uh, right? I mean, that's been a charmed program for a long time. But realistically, it probably still will be. I mean, it's still going to be Ryan Day's offense, I think, structurally. They're still going to have Marvin Harrison Jr. He could have, like, 200 catches if they wanted him to. I mean, he and McCord were high school teammates, right? We talked about that, uh, I think, a couple episodes ago. And that's absolutely going to be the most oversighted broadcast tidbit since John Beeline was never an assistant coach or... Something along those lines. Charles Matthews. Stafford and Clayton Kershaw. Right, yeah, yeah. There's like a a few go-to ones that get old pretty much immediately, and you know that's going to be one, that McCord and Harrison were were high school teammates. Yes, that's going to happen on all fucking 18 of Marvin Harrison's touchdowns. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. They still have Harrison. They still have Emeka Ibuka, Julian Fleming, Cade Stover. So, like, he's got a lot of help there in the passing game. It's going to make life pretty easy. Cade Stover. I'm a Cade, Cade Stover Stone. non-believer. Okay. <laughs> was it the uh, was it the dropped ball on on fourth down that Jalen Harrell raked out, or was it the dropped ball on third down that Mikey Sainer still ripped out? Both. Any particular? <laughs> Both. I'm a Any favorite of yours? I know the Mikey Sainer still rake out was like one of your favorite plays of the season of all time. Of all time in the pantheon. I think that's fair, honestly. But yeah, so it's it's a it's an offense that. I mean, the big reason they've had elite quarterback play is that it makes the quarterback's job very easy. If they pass the ball to Cade Stover a lot, Ryan Day's head should be on a pike. I mean, it, it might be already. Stop <laughs> It's it. pretty close. Get out of here. They're lighting the matches for the the, uh, the torches in Columbus. Yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be a good offense. Like, it's obviously just going to be a good offense because we know what Ohio State's going to be, and it's just a matter of how flamethrowery it is. I should also mention the... Uh, the running game they've got Mayan Williams and Trayvon Henderson coming back and that's an interesting one because the overall numbers were fine last year but once you drilled down it got really bad like their short yardage or like run oriented situations you know if you look like third and third and short or whatever all their numbers were really bad like Iowa-esque bad like sub 110th Trevion Henderson looked completely broken for a lot of the year even when he came back from injury so Mayan Williams ended up with the bulk of the carries. And I think Mayan Williams is actually pretty good, kind of for the same reason I mentioned with Maryland's guy, which is that he's sort of bowling ball-y, and when you can spread a team out and then run a guy like that into the middle of it, it usually works 
reasonably well, and they do have both of those guys back. But the O-line replaces both tackles, right? Both All-Americans, both first-round picks, and at center. And they brought in a couple of up transfers, including a, a tackle from San Diego State who was kind of a weird one because people were like, he wasn't even very good at like San Diego State. And that kind of makes you feel like the offensive line situation is a little dicey, right? Like when you're taking guys like that, it feels a little bit like Michigan taking Josh Wallace, except that Josh Wallace was probably even a, at least people were like, he's a pretty good corner and he had offers from like Iowa and some other schools where you're like, okay, they, there's something here that the teams are, are, are reaching out about. Um, but yeah, it just doesn't inspire a ton of confidence. And I think the reality of this offense, again, is that it's it's a finesse system. And I'm not even using that as an insult, really. I mean, you can consider it one if you want it to be. But it just is what it is. It spreads you out, and it creates a lot of space, and it creates a lot of big plays. But when both teams know that Ohio State absolutely has to get two yards because it's third and two or fourth and one and a half or whatever, that's a battle that you can win up front if you aren't getting completely overwhelmed on talent. And Michigan's not getting overwhelmed on talent. And Penn State's up front not getting overwhelmed on talent. And so you just see that. And you've seen that consistently since Ryan Day took over, right? Like, that, that just is what they uh, that's what they are. What did we say after the, uh, the game last year? The, the Mikey Sainra still quote, right? They are what we thought they were. And that, that's what they are. So I don't think you're going to see that change a whole lot. No, it's not. I mean, that's been their identity for years. It's not going anywhere. That's who they are. When yeah. they have to line up and, and get, you know, two yards, they struggle. And if they can throw the ball down the field on a gigantic play to one of their receivers who's blown past one of your corners, they're great. If you and, match them up against Michigan State, they're going to put up 60 points and 700 yards. Correct. <laughs> they're going to light the world on fire. And that's who they are. Right. It's just who they are. I, I do think that having the running backs healthy will probably make things a little bit better. I mean, that looked like it was a pretty, it was unreasonably bad last year. I don't know exactly what to expect from Trevion Henderson, but I guess I think Williams is as a bowling ball type option, a guy that you can make some things work with, at least against most teams. And then we'll find out come Saturday after Thanksgiving if there's actually been any real progress there. And speaking of which, maybe spend a little time on the less horrifying side of the ball. That defense is soft. Next. <laughs> yeah, while we're on the topic of finesse teams... Um, Jim Knowles has to have the best series as a defensive coordinator he's maybe had in his life, right? And this is why he's here, et cetera, et cetera. It's, honestly, it, it's music to my ears. <laughs> I, like, your girl's having a bad day. I'm just going to put on that call and then yeah, watch Yeah, sometimes Donovan we just send each other, <laughs> like, the, the one highlight of, like, Jim Knowles has to have the best series he's been. As soon as you hear it, it's like, oh, yeah, that feels good. It warms, warms the heart, doesn't it's it? It's so satisfying. But, yeah, the defense, it's, um, I mean, it, it is. It's, it's kind of a finesse defense that has mostly worked to the extent that it's worked it's mostly worked on talent and that's probably going to be the case again this year and the top line numbers will be fine but the thing to me that has jumped out is that the level of talent here is good but not good enough for what they sometimes need it to be and we've seen that I mean mostly against Michigan really and to some extent against Georgia last year I think that's primarily a development problem rather than a true talent problem like if you're looking at looking at recruiting stars of what they're bringing in, you would say, well, they certainly should be, you know, a top five-ish defense nationally. But from a development standpoint, they just haven't produced the, you know, the, the Bosa's or the Chase Young's or if you go back to the Trestle eras, the top 10 linebackers or even the, the corners. I mean, they had a run of 
really elite corner play for a while. And you look around the defense now, and it's like, okay, I mean, sure, like JT Tuimoloal is very good, and Tommy Eichenberg is a, a good linebacker, but like, it's not, I think, what it probably has to be to make up for what they have lost in development and scheme over the last few years. I mean, they have, uh, like going back to last year, they were 23rd in SP plus defense. And that's fine, but like that's not going to win you a national title. And they could have won a national title with like, what, a, a you know, number 15 defense or something, just a little bit better. Like one more stop against Georgia, you know, or, or maybe one or two more stops against Michigan. So you get them, they get themselves a better matchup. Like they're not that far off, but the defense just isn't there. And as I mentioned, when you like drilling down a little bit further, there's an SP plus stat called marginal explosiveness, which is basically when you give up a big play, how big is it? They were 119th nationally. When they got got, they got got bad. And this is probably not very surprising to anybody who watched the Michigan Ohio state game. Like what they had to do was, and (laughs) we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more. I mean, but they had to overcommit basically to make up for some of their shortcomings in certain areas and so when they got you beat, mean that soft ass line when they yes when they got beat they got torched and that was a problem against more teams than just Michigan but Michigan was the one that really took advantage of that so again it's probably going to be a fine defense with Tui Moluau who's probably the best edge guy in the Big Ten Tommy Eichenberg who you know he's a first team all Big Ten guy even though to me again he doesn't stand out as like the the high-end linebackers we used to see back in the Jim Trestle days They've got former, like, top five overall recruit Jack Sawyer lining up at the other edge spot across from Tui Moluel. Michael Hall, a lot of people are talking about, is maybe a first-round pick at defensive tackle. Denzel Burke at corner. They got a couple of quality transfers in the secondary. They got um, Davis Nigbenusen, who was a guy that Michigan was interested in from Ole Miss at corner, and, uh, and safety Jihad Carter from Syracuse. So I think they added some in the secondary that's probably going to help. I mean... God, Lathan Ransom had one of the most brutal safety games I've ever seen against Michigan. You and almost feel bad for him, honestly. <laughs> almost, but not quite. I don't. I mean, you, you, other people might, not me. You, you might, not yeah. from where I'm sitting. <laughs> and Cam Martinez, frankly, wasn't a whole lot better in that game. Like it was pretty rough. But at the same time, like Lathan Ransom's on small Big Ten teams, and you look around at all those guys I just mentioned, and it's not like they're glaring holes. Again, talent is really not the problem. It's just. It's not like there are the all-world guys. There's no, they don't have a C.J. Stroud, a Marvin Harrison, and a Mecca Ibuka. Like what they're doing on offense, they're not replicating on defense, and that's just, it's a little bit of a weakness for them, relatively speaking. It's probably going to be more than good enough for ten-ish games on the schedule, and then between the Michigan game and maybe the Penn State game, depending on what Drew Aller is, Jim Knowles is going to have another. This is why he's here moment, for better or for worse, and. You know, we're going to find out. I, I frankly, I'm skeptical that it's going to look a lot different given what we've seen from them for the last couple of years and given what we talked about as the identity of this program, which is kind of finesse and not really having the development that they need. But go ahead. You were going to say something. Yeah. I mean, I think Jim Knowles gave a quote relatively recently and I can't remember exactly what it was. It was a few weeks ago, but I remember that the tenor of the quote was essentially blaming execution for the problems that Ohio State had on defense last year. And if he really thinks that the problem is all execution, they're doomed because it's not. It's just fundamentally not. And I think, you know, the Michigan-Ohio State game is the quintessential example of that. I know 
um, you know, you wanted to talk about this. It's here in our little outline, but there's been a lot of relitigating of last year's game. Well, can I make one point real quickly about the execution, which is that we used to hear that all the time from Brady Hoke and Al Borges. Correct. And the reason that they made, I mean, they're not exactly wrong, but the fundamental problem with that thinking is that usually what it means is that you're, pl- you're putting your players in positions where they have to make difficult plays that they're not capable of regularly making. And a good coach doesn't do that. He puts his players in position where everything gets easier. And you can still have execution errors, but the reality is that by making the jobs easier, you just get fewer of them by nature, right? Yeah. So I, I think you're right. If that's really his philosophy or, or his his view on what the... Is that like Lathan Ransom just needed to do it right. Right. That's a problem. If Lathan Ransom just doesn't get turned around in one-on-one coverage, we're fine. Like, sure. <laughs> like, well, you, please maintain that that mindset going into next year's game because you're going to see the same thing again. And you don't know how much stock to put into that because, you know, coaches just, they just say coach speak bullshit all the time. And and you don't know if that actually, if he's just not going to tell you what he thinks the actual problem is. And so he says nonsense and like thinks most people won't think about it that hard. But if that's a genuine belief, that's a problem. That'd be great. (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm fine with that actually. But for, for Ohio State, that's a problem because... I don't think it was an execution problem last year. And I, you know, I, it, I don't think it was an ex- execution problem in 2021 either. It was a structural problem because the structural problem is they did not have the guys on the line to line up with Michigan mano a mano. They just didn't. And they yeah, structural or person or personnel development. You could argue is the other part, right? Like you right. just, you can't match up one-on-one up front. And so you have to do, things that aren't ideal from a structural standpoint to try to make up for that. Right. And so, you know, there's been a lot of relitigating of that game last year because it's the off season and people don't have anything better to do with their fucking lives except argue about barbecue recruits (laughs) and what happened last year. And one of the things that we keep hearing was, you know, the five big plays thing. And I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast before. We probably have. I think we have once or twice, but but not in much depth. But... Matt and I talk about this at home all the time, and it's one of these things where, like, I don't know what we've said on record and what we haven't, and it just all blends together. (laughs) So if we've said this before, sorry, you're going to hear it again. Nobody's going to mind, honestly. That's obviously not right, because if you are putting your defense in a position where you need to play, like, 8-9 in the box you are susceptible to those big plays. That's a feature, not a bug. And you can't act like it's a bug when that's the way that you have elected to play the game. You have elected to play the game in a way that makes you vulnerable. If all guys are within a few yards of the line of scrimmage, that means if Coram's in the second level, he's gone. And it means if Edwards is in the second level, he's gone. And you've elected to play the game that way. That's not an execution error and it's not a bug. It is a feature of the game plan that you have created. You don't get to act like it's a bug. Well, and I think you kind of, to understand that, I think it helps to go back to 2021, right? And just what happened in that game and why they ended up playing the 2022 game the way they did. Like, you go back to that 2021 game, and I, I looked up the numbers here. And Michigan, their median run play in that game, they had 41 carries in that game. And their median run was five yards or six if you take out the goal line stuff, like goal line kneel downs at the end of the half. I mean, that was an ass kicking at the line of scrimmage. It was not competitive. 
like this is not surprising to anybody. We, <laughs> if you're listening to this, I'm sure you've watched that game probably numerous times. And last year, Ohio State just very obviously was not going to let that happen. But to do that, when you can't match up one-on-one, you have to like overweight up front and give up something else, exactly what you were saying, right? They tried to play a man up on the box on an every-down basis and then play cover one or even cover zero behind that and say, we're going to take our chances that like we are susceptible to getting burned, but we're going to hope that the good plays that we get out of this more than make up for the big ones that we give up. And I think it was Seth Fisher at MGO Blog who perfectly described this, honestly. Was he, he called it pulling the goalie. And it was just exactly the right metaphor because they wanted to play with a man advantage up front the whole game. And in doing so, they have to acknowledge that if you get beat, you're getting totally beat. Right? There's nothing, there's nothing on the back end to protect you at that point because you want to play with the man advantage up front and take away what you think or you think Michigan wants to do most, which is run the ball. And again, they just took the chance that they'd get more positive down-to-down plays out of it and get Michigan in a bunch of third longs, et cetera, et cetera. And that would more than make up for whatever catastrophic ones they gave up. And to be honest, I'm not sure – you've asked me about this. Like, how would you do it? Or what do you think can be done differently? And I'm really not sure that that was the wrong approach. I mean, in fairness, TCU also played their game that way, too. They played really aggressively. And it yeah. worked for them. Yeah, I mean, they Michigan ended up scoring, what, 45 points or whatever. So you, you did see some of the same thing. But I, I'm not sure it was the wrong decision, but it was a structural, philosophical, strategic, whatever you want to call it, decision by Ohio State to play that game or to play the game that way. It wasn't an execution bust, right? I mean— when you put a guy one-on-one and he's got 40 yards of open field to run through and you get beat, you can't really look at it and say, no, nah, that was just a fluke. Like, you're not going to hit those plays a bunch of times. Michigan probably had, like, from us rewatching that game, I think we've identified something like 8 to 10 plays that probably should have been 60-plus-yard touchdowns. There were the plays Stokes there all one, day. The Stokes one comes to mind. Stokes had one early. The uh, I mean, the, the jump pass, right, by Mullings. I mean, if that had been just straight play action— Schoonmaker's walking into the end zone, right? Like there were numerous, they were there all day. And if you're thinking about it from an odd standpoint, that was probably about the right number of big play touchdowns that Michigan scored. Right. If you're saying there were 11, there were eight to 10 10 of (laughs) them available, you know, all right, we hit half. It seems right. You're going to gamble like that. I just, you don't you don't get to act like it's a bug when it was a feature. You don't get to and or imply that it was a fluke, basically, which is what a lot of the to, you know yeah, it was just bug. five plays. It was five fluky plays, and therefore, if those five go differently, we win. It, it just ignores the reality of why Ohio State played the game that way, which was what Michigan did in 2021, and what Ohio State had to do to make up for that. And we saw it right on that drive at the end of the third quarter, early into the fourth quarter. It was like when an eight-minute drive. walked them down the field for eight minutes. At a, yeah, I right, mean, because after they'd ripped off the, th- the third big play touchdown, Ohio State sat another safety back, played too high, and Michigan went 15 plays, 81 yards, 10 of those being run plays for an average of five yards. It turned right back into the 2021 game. Michigan went up by 11, and then Ohio State went back to playing defense like they were calling field goal block in Madden, where you've got 11 guys rushing, and Donovan Edwards is just jaunting through the secondary with nobody around. It was... It was very clear what decision they had to make and why they did it. But again, it was a decision. Right. So the question for them and, you know, part of the reason we're relitigating it because of the Twitter discourse, but we're also relitigating it because until 
I see evidence that they can play that game on the defensive side of the ball in a way that makes yep. any fucking sense or will yield any results for them. They're two. That's it. You're two. Like, yeah, you, you know, have to prove that you can stop what Michigan wants to do at some point. Michigan's done it twice in a row, right? 27 points against an outstanding 2021 Ohio State offense and 23 points last year against a, what seemed to be an equally good 2022 Ohio State offense. Michigan has held that team in check well enough to win comfortably two years in a row, and Ohio State has shown no ability whatsoever. They have not shown any semblance of a plan that is actually going to work because they're either getting run off the ball or they're getting torched over the top. And right now they're picking their poison. And, yeah, I think that's right. Like, until they show some ability to stop that with some consistency, I can't pick against Michigan to win that game again, especially at home this year. So that's why they're uh, that's why they're number two. And the 2023 comparison for Ohio State, we've decided, is Oppenheimer, which I think probably tips our hand about what we think Michigan <laughs> is. But man, this program is powerful. It's dangerous, and you could argue that the man in charge has gotten it to a point where it's almost too powerful, to the point where he might be a danger to himself if he doesn't manage things correctly in the coming months. Right, the expectations are really high, and if he doesn't handle things right here, it could be, it could be a dangerous situation. It's dicey for you, situation. Ryan, and it's dicey for you, Oppenheimer. So, <laughs> There's I mean, also, I feel like, just kind of this, I mean, relative to what's going on with Michigan, Ohio State's kind of, there's kind of a, a little bit of a cloud hovering over that program with the, the two straight years of getting run off the field by Michigan of like, oh man, is this, is this the John Cooper area again? Like, are we going to have to, to start over and, and figure out something else to, to be able to get over that hump? And I, there's kind of these like somber tones of like, oh man, what, you know, we're close, but like, are we close? And so there's just, it's just a little bit. Are we doing the right thing? Are we doing, <laughs> exactly. Spoiler alert. No. Um, but no, I mean, I think that's right. They're Oppenheimer. Before we move on, can just one related note, thinking about all of the 2022 stuff. In the past few days, there was also the quote from Ryan Day back in 2020 that made its way around Twitter about, we're going to hang 100 on him. And uh, a lot of Ohio State fans were taking the opportunity to kind of, for lack of a better word, revisit Michigan's cancellation of that game. And obviously what they were doing was creating this sort of like mental fan fiction where Michigan doesn't cancel that game loses by a billion because they had something like 30 healthy players and Harbaugh gets fired, which means that he then isn't around in 2021 and 2022. And it was a lot of like, well, if you hadn't canceled that game, dot, 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 you know, and that's just objectively extremely funny to me because these people have obviously driven, been driven fully insane by the last two years. And it means that they're, they're kind of accepting the reality of what happened in 2021 and 2022 and they're now trying to create this sort of revisionist history of like, yeah, but if Harbaugh wasn't there, like, yeah, man, guess what? He is. And uh, here we are. Copium part two. Copium part two. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Number one, Big Ten East. Whose division is this? Michigan's division. Michigan's division. That's goddamn right. We're not going to talk in too much detail about Michigan here just because we're literally going to spend four podcasts between now and the beginning right. of the year talking about Michigan. We're about to fully dive into the like offense-defense preview, so it doesn't really make sense to spend a lot of time doing that here at the end of this episode that's already pushing an hour and a half. But, 
I mean, as we just talked about with Ohio State and the matchup there, this has to be the division favorite. It is the division favorite by a pretty healthy margin, according to the media poll going into the year. And I mean, I think we've mentioned this on the podcast before that like barring a really problematic injury or two or just some general weirdness about something taking a big step back in a way that can't possibly be predicted, this should be one of Michigan's best teams in my lifetime. I mean, I think back to, Definitely. again, 2006, maybe 2003. If you want to go back to 97, maybe. Like, we're getting back there. We're and really, really flirting with the edge of my lifetime if we have to go back to 97. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, on paper at least. Like, obviously there are questions to answer and things that you never really know how they're going to play out, but it looks really promising. It looks like a team that, that should be the division favorite going in and – just in general, it should be really fucking fun. So we're excited about the next few weeks and, and, and getting more into the Michigan-specific content here. Yeah, and like we said, because of the return of J.J., the fact that Michigan plays this game at home and just the fact that it seems like Michigan is winning the stylistic battle between it and Ohio State. They have imposed their will. Right They now. play this game the way they want to, and they've done that against everybody, really. I mean, that's part of, I think, what makes them so clear as the division favorite is it's not like you can look back at the Penn State game and say, like, oh, well, Penn State was really close. I mean, Michigan played the same game. They played the game they wanted to play against everybody, and they basically for got the same team. For better or for worse sometimes. <laughs> yeah. but they sometimes did. it took a while, but eventually they leaned on you until you fell over and you got crushed, right? And that's just how, how that season went. And you know, we're going to have plenty of time to, to think about, you know, whether that is something that can be done again or, or whether, you know, this year looks quite like last year, but – there's really no reason to think that this Michigan team won't be the best team in the division, if not the conference. So that's where we're at. You want to take the uh, 2023 comparison to kind of play us off here? Barbie. Barbie. Michigan is Barbie. And the reason why is because the vibes are amazing. It's the 80s. It's the 90s. All over again. It feel It's feeling good. It's feeling amazing all eyes are on us we're ruling right now everybody's talking way. about michigan as you know maybe the national championship favorite it's it's wild to have all the attention all the all the eyes on us like you said and and for a nice little mathematical tidbit barbie doubled up oppenheimer at the box office or just about doubled up oppenheimer <laughs> at the box office on its first weekend and what's 23 times 2 so it's around 45. It's pretty close ballpark. to 45. It felt right. <laughs> Michigan's Barbie. It does feel right. And also, I think going with the, the spirit of the Barbie movie specifically, since we did take 2023 here, there's probably going to be some, some unpleasant shit and some hard realities that we have to get through to get to where Michigan really wants to be, right? There is a larger goal that is not quite where Michigan has gotten to yet over the last couple of years. But it is our time. And to your point, the vibes are great. So let's fucking do it. And of course, in the same way, as we know, release day, the Barbie versus Oppenheimer showdown was talked about for months. People were like, who's going to come out on top of this box office? Is it Barbie? Is it Oppenheimer? These are the two biggest theatrical releases of the year. And the movie buffs had July 21 circled on their calendar. And likewise, the football buffs have November 25th circled on yep. their calendar. Our Barbenheimer comes on November 25th. That's right. That's right. With that, if you're still here, thank you for listening. We'll be back to start previewing Michigan for real soon. That's right. Fall camp kicked off today. It is officially the first day of camp. We are amped. And yes, we're coming back soon with uh, the Michigan-specific previews. So 
We're ready. It's coming. So if you're still here, thank you for listening. And with that, we'll see you back next week. Go Blue.